So they say that confession is good for the soul, and uh, I think it only right and proper that I confess to you today that when I first saw the Bible passage that I was assigned to preach on, I saw a list of names, I saw a list of dates of who was born when, and I thought, wow. But God is very gracious and very gentle and very loving. And as I was reflecting on these passages, thinking, what on earth does God want us to say from this? I was reminded, by, reminded of uh, Paul's advice to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, 16, which is on the board, but ever so, slow, ever so uh, small. It says, all scripture is breathed by, out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. So if God in his infinite wisdom decided that he wanted a list of names in his word, there's a reason for it there. It has purpose. And I believe that purpose is to help us grow in our faith and our understanding of God. And it's my prayer today that we will be blessed and encouraged by this message and these verses, and we will truly see how we are blessed to serve a very faithful God. Please, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can explore it together in freedom and safety. We pray, Lord, that you open our hearts to your Holy Spirit, and that we may see and hear only that which is of you. Hide me, Lord Jesus. Hide me and lift up you, we pray. Amen. So last week, we were reminded by Ben that as he explored the account of the Tower of Babel, that the humans who were alive then wanted to serve God on their own terms and in their own way. They had disobeyed God's clear instruction to disperse and multiply throughout the world, but instead decided to settle in one plane and do their own thing, which was, of course, in defiance to God. Today, we're going to continue exploring this and look at how God called a man from a land of confusion and idolatry and chose him to be the father of a nation, but not just any nation, a nation that would be entrusted with the very savior of humanity, Jesus Christ. The man in question, of course, is Abram, who we later know as Abraham. So please forgive me if I use those names interchangeably through, uh, throughout the sermon. We will see today that Abram was in fact far from perfect, but yet God still chose him. He was a man like us with many flaws and many failings, yet God was able to use him for his glory and for his purpose. Now, as we survey verses 10 to 26 of Genesis chapter 11, we see the family tree of Shem down to Terah. And there is a lot to take in when we consider the, uh, the verses. They take on a familiar pattern, as we've seen previously in Genesis chapter 5. In both cases, the lists conclude with the next main character that will be cleverly introduced into the story. Genesis 5, the sequence concludes with Noah, and introduces him to the work that he will accomplish. However, in Genesis chapter 11, 
it does appear to stop with Terah, and yet we know that it's his son Abraham that goes on to become the central figure of the next few chapters of Genesis. Now, before we explore the possible reasons for this, there's some important observations to be made from the family list of Shem in chapter 11. Whereas chapter 5 ends with, and he died, there is no mention of death in, these, in this summary, which is very positive, because I know how Ross looked at those passages, even more perplexed than I did looking at mine, when he just saw that he was going to have to talk about, and then he died, and then he died. The other thing to note is that the ages and the deaths listed, um, the lifespan of each person is drastically reduced from before the flood till after the flood. If you take the same number of generations before the flood, we're looking at an average lifespan, average lifespan of 900 years. But after the flood, it's reduced very significantly. We're looking now with these generations to an average lifespan of approximately 300. Now, I've often wondered what could be the, the cause of this, what could have accounted for this, and it seems that there could be a number of possible factors uh, rather than one specific cause. Firstly, the environmental conditions of the world after the flood would have been harsher, and this would have caused life expectancy to deteriorate. Some commentators attribute the introduction of meat into humans' diet or the change of CO2 levels in the atmosphere as a cause. Still others suggest that the ongoing impact of sin in the world was the primary factor in why lifespan was reduced after the flood and that effectively the patriarchs were seeing firsthand that sin was causing death at a very rapid rate. Whatever the agency that caused the lifespan to shorten, it's clear that the earth was moving towards the fulfillment of God's announcement in Genesis chapter 6. Man's days shall be 120 years. Verses 27 through to 32 provide more detail about Terah and his family and descendants. And we know that Terah was a wealthy man who lived in the great city of Ur. Remains of this city have been uncovered in present-day Iraq, and it is truly a remarkable place. In the time period of Genesis 11, Ur was a large, influential, and wealthy city in the mouth of the river Euphrates. It's sought by many scholars to have been the largest city in the world at that time. As large as Ur was, it was dominated by a huge temple to the moon god, Nana, who was also known by the name Sin. Yeah, that's right. S-I-N, the name of their moon god in Mesopotamia. And as you can see from the photos of the ziggurat in Ur, it was a huge temple full of pagan worship. A number of scholars comment on the name Terah, the patriarch that we're looking at primarily today, and how it shares its links with the worship of the moon god in Mesopotamia, where this ziggurat is situated. That that you can see on the screen now is the actual remains of the temple, unearthed about 100 years ago and then restored more recently. And that was just the temple. The city itself was, was huge around it. 
So Ur was the capital city for moon worship in the ancient Near East. It was, it was a city that had false worship throughout. And the fact that Terah worshipped a false god in this environment is not remarkable. In jo the book of Joshua, chapter 24 and verse 2, Terah is identified as an idolater and worshipper of false gods. And in addition to that, the Midrash, which of course is the ancient rabbinical interpretation of Scripture, claimed that Terah made a living selling idols, both in Ur of the Chaldeans and, of course, later in Haran. But yet, what's remarkable is that from this household and this environment of idolatry and pagan worship, God chooses a man to be the father of his nation. From a household steeped in idol worship and false belief, God reveals himself to Abram and gave him a life of purpose. The grace of God knows no bounds. So Terah was a follower of idol worship. He was a man of influence and status in his community. He was father of Abraham and grandfather to Lot. But verse 28 of Genesis chapter 11 reveals something very significant about Terah and that one of his three sons, Haran, had died in Terah's presence in Ur. He literally watched his son die in front of him, very possibly in his own arms. Now, I can't begin, as a parent, I can't begin to imagine how dreadful that must have been for him. The emotional scars that it caused for Terah, I can't begin to comprehend how it shaped his heart and robbed him of the joy of life, how it made him bitter and hurt and angry with his gods. Could it be that this hurt of losing his son made him more open to now following the one true God? Verse 30. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Again, this verse gives us such sad detail of Abram's wife, Sarai. It states that she was barren, she had no children. And in a society that prized fertility, indeed, Mesopotamia had over six pagan gods for fertility. Sarai was a woman who could not produce offspring. And this brought a real sense of pain and hurt for both her and Abram. The fact that it's mentioned here means that it is important, and in a few verses' time, we will perhaps see why. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Notice what's happening here. Terah, the idolater, takes his family and leaves Ur to go to the land of Canaan. Our question really is why? Why does Terah set off to an unknown land? Who or what prompts him? Then, what makes him decide to stop and settle in Haran, halfway across to Canaan, and not continue? Now, for those of you who have Bibles with section headings, you'll be probably a little bit perplexed and think that maybe something's not quite right here because you will have noticed that the next section, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 12, 
is entitled The Call of Abram. And it's here that we see God calling Abram to leave his father's land and to travel in faith to the land of promise. So according to the timeline, the call recorded in Genesis chapter 12 takes place in Haran. So if this call of Abram takes place in Haran, why is it that Terah and family left Ur many years earlier to travel to Canaan, but then settled in Haran? Well, I believe the New Testament offers an explanation, and I'm sure many of you will be know it already. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 2, and this is the scene where Stephen is about to be martyred. Paul stands in attendance watching, holding the coats, while the first Christian martyr is, is killed. And before doing so, Stephen gives a speech, and he says, and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which we are now living. See, the Bible is truth. And when we allow it to speak for itself, we can see that it shares this truth and we have to look and see where it is. So according to Stephen, God called Abram while he was a younger man in Ur. Abram, together with his entire family, including his father Terah, then set off for Canaan. God spoke to Abram while he was in Ur, and based on this, Terah decides to obey the true God and follow the death of his son Haran previously perhaps will have played a part in challenging his faith on, in the false gods that he served, thus making him more open to seek after the true God. So consequently, in verse 31 of chapter 11, we see Abram's family stepping out in faith based on the call of God to Abram in Ur, and this is why they left in the first instance but let's look at the route they took. So the uh, yellow-orange line is, starts in Ur, and you'll notice that they go uh, up north to Haran, and then eventually Abram makes the journey down to Canaan. Now, the most direct way, as you can look at this map, is to, tra to travel from, from Ur to Canaan, is actually to go across the desert, straight across, right to left. Now, those of you who know this geography well will know that it would have been a very harsh journey, for certain, but not insurmountable. Instead, of course, the family decides to take the popular trade route along the River Euphrates. That orangey-yellow line runs along the River Euphrates, Known, it's known as a Fertile Crescent. And by doing so, it took them away from where they wanted to go, but ultimately led them to Haran. Now, the route that they chose would have been relatively comfortable and pleasant, given that it was along fertile land, when you, especially when you compare it with the trek across the desert. The added bonus, of course, for them would be that they would have, uh, when they stopped in Haran, they would have felt it was a home from home. 
the journey from Ur to Haran would have been around 700 miles. So even at an optimistic pace, it would have still been many weeks of traveling to get there, and they were still only halfway to Canaan. Suddenly, the tired traveling family reach a city that for Terah has special significance. It shares a similar sounding name to that of his dead son, Haran. It's also a center of moon god worship in the, that region of the world. And surrounded by the familiar, even though he was in a strange city, it made it all the more attractive for him to settle there and to encourage his family to do so too, instead of continuing on the journey to Canaan as God had instructed. Perhaps Terah was convinced that he and Abraham, they could stay and serve God in Haran. They didn't need to go further to Canaan. Besides, they would be looking at another 700-mile journey, and this time in harsher conditions. Would it be really be worth it to go to all that effort to drag the family there on the say-so of a mystery God that spoke to Abraham? I doubt very much that Terah was forceful or pushy in insisting that they settle in Haran. It's more likely he was able to very subtly influence the family and persuade them of the benefits of just simply settling. Perhaps he reminded them of the difficulties of the journey that they'd encountered so far and told them they'd be better served by settling there before going on again. Perhaps Terah pointed out that it was a, a chance for them to establish a base, to get comfortable, to recharge, top up the energy reserves while they enjoy the comforts of Haran. How we got the family to stay, we may never know. But what we do know is that them staying in Haran was not God's plan. It was open defiance against God. If you permit me, I'd like to share with you um, a few paragraphs from Spurgeon commenting on this passage as he sums up beautifully, I believe, the issues this, this passage raises. To obey the Lord partially is to disobey him. If the Lord bids Abram go to Canaan, he cannot fulfill that command by going to Haran. Haran was not mentioned in the call. You cannot keep God's command by doing something else which pleases you better. The essence of obedience lies in its exactness. Although something else may seem to you to be quite as good as the thing commanded, what has that to do with it? This is what God bids you. And to refuse the thing commanded, professing to substitute to a better thing, is gross presumption. You may not think it's so, but so it is. That half obedience is whole disobedience. We can only obey the Lord's command as it stands. To alter it is, a great, is as great a treason as to make erasures in a king's statute book. It is will worship and not God's worship. If I do what I choose of the Lord's work and leave a part undone, which does not please me quite so well. Moreover, Halfway obedience increases our responsibility because it is a plain confession that we know the Lord's will, though we do it not. Abram had received a call, 
and he knew that he had done so, else why had he come to Haran? He admitted by going as far as Haran that he ought to go the whole way to Canaan, and so by his own action he left himself without excuse. And any of you, any of us, who are doing in a measure what is right because of the fear of God, and yet acting in other ways contrary to what we know to be the Lord's will, we are left without excuse for such neglect. By the service which you do, render to God, you admit that he has right to your obedience. Why then do you not obey him in all things? You call Jesus your Lord and do some of the things which he says, but why not the rest? Friends, it's so easy to settle, to find ourselves in a comfortable space with familiar surroundings to our desires and natural hearts, inclinations, and just to settle in and become comfortable with serving God, but not completely. How easy is it to put off the difficult and challenging things that God is asking us to do and simply settle for an experience that isn't what God intended for us? In the case of Abram, his father's influence will no doubt have helped to shape his willingness to stay and to settle in Haran and not move forward in faith to what God has actually called him to do. Perhaps Abram felt he was honoring his father by settling Haran despite God's call on his life. Verse 32. Terah died in Haran. Although this verse has a literal and factual application and meaning, it seems appropriate as well to look at the spiritual element to it also. Although Terah actually died in Haran and was buried, he died spiritually there as well, long before he actually died. With each passing year of his decision to settle in Haran, with the familiar that surrounded him, rather than to step out in faith with God, Terah had shown that he was dead long before he died. The enticement of life in Haran became his focus and distracted him. Distracted him from the mission that he'd been entrusted with, and God wanted the family to go. Terah said no. Terah died. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the sower, recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, where we see the sower threw the seed in order to gain a crop, and the seed fell in different types of soil. As we know, some seed fell among the thorn bushes, which grew up and choked the plants. In the parable, the thorn bushes rep represent the things in life that choke the message of God. The message is heard, but people's concerns for the here and now, for riches, for the worries about life, that's what causes the plants to die. Some people are too concerned with this life and what others think that they forget what God has told us. They settle back into the familiar and ignore the message God has given us and therefore miss out on the kingdom. Terah did exactly that. He heard the word of God through his son and set off to fulfill God's purpose. But soon the cares of this world caused him to settle and for so much less than God was actually offering. Terah died thinking that what he settled for was all that mattered. He missed the greatest opportunity to, 
take part in the blessing that God had prepared for him, a relationship with him. What a terrible and tragic way to end a life. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and I will be and you will be a blessing. Now that Terah had died, God calls Abram once again. God is faithful. Even when we are so wretched, God calls Abram again and reminds him of what he wants Abram to do. Five things from this passage that we can see. The first one is go from your country. Haran had now become Abram's home and he was to leave it behind. Two, go from your family. Abram was to leave with just his wife, Sarai. Three, go from your father's house. Nothing from his father's house, the idols, the forms of worship, were to come with them on their journey. Four, go to the land I will show you. God himself was going to lead Abram to the promised land. Five, God will make Abram a great nation. God was going to do the seemingly impossible and provide Abram with children. Here is where we see our faithful God lovingly calling Abram and reminding him of the promises he received as a younger man. But here, sadly, is where we also see that years of living in Haran, not following God's plan and purpose for his life, have caused Abram to stumble in his walk with God. Yes, to his credit, Abram sets off on this journey of faith, listening and responding to the call of God, but notice it's on his terms. He doesn't quite follow God's instructions as God gave them. God told him to go from his kindred, which means his family. But instead, we see that he takes his nephew Lot with him. Why, you may ask? Why take Lot? Well, it seems that Abraham, although wanting to follow God's call, felt that God needed a helping hand in accomplishing his purpose. We know that Abram and Sarai could not have children, and so Abram bringing Lot along with him was Abram's foolish attempt at helping God out. God tells Abram he will become a great nation. Abram's response is to make a backup plan to help God. Abram trusted God to lead him to Canaan, but he didn't fully trust him to deliver on the promise of children. And this was the beginning of a pattern that would play out in Abraham's life. He would trust God, but only partly, and then come up with his own scheme or plan to help God out. Imagine the audacity of it. Here was a mere man thinking he could help God out. Abraham was guilty of the popular human perspective, which says, God says, but I think otherwise. God told him one thing, but he was convinced it must mean something else and something that he could contribute towards. Friends, I really love the story of Abraham because he gives me hope. 
Abraham thought he could help God out, but all he did was get in the way. Now, how many times have I done the same? How many times has God been clear through his word, and instead of following it as he wants me to, I've done my own thing, which seems close enough to God's plan, but yet is so far removed from it. God wants us to trust him. But, but why do we trust him? I think the children's story earlier illustrated that with the response of some of the children when they said they know me, and that's why they trusted me. God wants us to trust him. And I believe that the more we encounter Jesus through his word and the power of the Holy Spirit breathing life into our lives, we will trust him. We'll trust him more and more. And the closer we walk with Jesus each day in prayer and meditating on his word, we will grow in our trust of the only God who can save us. As the Puritan writer Thomas Brooke wrote, it is not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. Friends, let's make getting closer to God, knowing him for ourselves as our loving Father, our priority. It is then and only then that we will stop wanting to help God out by making backup plans for him, as we will know him and all the things that are possible with him and his will for our lives will be done. Verse 7, when the Lord appeared to Abraham, he said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Despite Abraham's lack of complete surrender to God's plan, God was still faithful to Abraham. God still lovingly and patiently leads Abraham and shows him the promised land. God is faithful to us, despite us not deserving it. As the author Bob LaForge wrote, there is many a believer who forsakes God, but there is never a believer whom God forsakes. God amazingly loves us despite our tendency to wander from him. What an awesome God God is. Before we close, I've got... Two application points I'd like us to consider and reflect on. The first is, are we settling? God wanted Abram to go to Canaan, but Terah and the family settled in Haran instead. They stopped halfway. They didn't fully obey the voice of the true God. It could be that once they lost the momentum by stopping in Haran, they just got comfortable. Inertia took over, so they just settled in. Maybe Terah felt comfortable enough that he just didn't feel the need to sacrifice more in service of the Lord. Whatever the reason was, Terah stopped halfway. But if God called them to go to Canaan, then they did not fully obey. And as Spurgeon commented earlier, incomplete obedience is disobedience. For Terah and Abram, it was years wasted mission unfulfilled friends are we settling to are we settling to 
Has the comfort of life slowed us down to a stop? Has the plan and purpose that God has for our lives been brought to a halt? Friends, God has called us to be his witnesses in this world and therefore to go and share the good news. As Elster Begg puts it, it's our identity in Christ which then gives rise to our activity in Christ. God's plan for every faithful Christian, no matter what age or stage of life, is to go and share the good news in our communities. The Great Commission applies to us all. God wants us to share the gospel to a dying world, a dying community around us. He hasn't saved us just so we can sit and be comfortable. He saved us and commissions us to share the good news of Jesus. But are we doing that? Are we just getting comfortable, allowing things to distract us from our core mission? Each of us knows the potential distractions that may come into our lives. Each of us knows what settling feels like. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to continue to settle? Or are we going to step out in faith with Jesus leading as we share the good news to the world around us? Friends, Jesus hasn't blessed us so that we can simply settle for less than he wants us to have. He's blessed us to go and tell others to share the best news the world could ever hear. Point number two, God says, but I think. God says, but I think. Friends, has God's word taken a back seat to our own opinion? It did for Abraham in this instance, and it has for me on occasion in my life as well. God spoke and told him what would happen, but Abraham thought that he knew better. He thought that, what God had, that the God who made the universe and everything within it needed to be helped out by Abraham and his backup plan. Now, the problem Abraham had is a familiar one, and it can be summed up simply as, God says, but I think. God speaks to us through his word, and often it's a challenging message. It's one that's difficult to comprehend or reconcile with the world's modern way of thinking. And so the danger is so often that we try to do God a favor by saying, well, I think. We do this, of course, in an effort to tone down or make acceptable what God's words actually states. Friends, this is a very dangerous route to take. Increasingly, we are seeing Christians today that are depending on their own thinking rather than God's word. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 reminds us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. When we, when we put our own opinions above God's word, we can become highly opinionated, confused, and spiritually weak people who are vulnerable to blatant false teaching and progressive ideas that are not of God. We end up thinking that we have to help God out by doing something to rearrange his word and to tone it down so that it becomes acceptable for others to hear. Abraham did this to some extent. Having a child at his and Sarai's late stage in life seemed impossible to Abraham, 
And yet that was what God told him would happen. Pure and simple. The fact that Abraham didn't trust God shows his lack of faith and understanding in who God is. And every time we take what God has said, as difficult as it may read, and we try to make it fit with our own thinking, our own understanding, then we actually try to limit God. We demonstrate our own lack of faith and understanding in who he is and what he has declared in his word. Our attitude should rather be one of complete trust and reliance on God and his word. We need to make our time feasting on his word a time that draws us into a relationship with him and gives us the confidence to take him at his word. The hymn writer reminds me, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Friends, if we find ourselves not trusting in Jesus today as we once knew we did, or as we know we must, our most urgent challenge is to prayfully return to complete dependence on God in every aspect of faith and life. We can only flourish as Christians with a faith that is grounded in Jesus Christ. And we find Jesus in his word, the Bible. When we do so, we are free from the risk of trying to base our faith on our fickle opinions which is like shifting sand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity you've given us to reflect on your word. Lord, you've included the story of Abraham and Terah for us to be able to see and understand that partial obedience is not what you expect from us. And it's not what you deserve. Complete obedience to you and your will is what's required of us. Father, we ask and pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit and renew our heart's desire to know you for who you are and to completely put our faith and trust in you each day. Bless each and every one of us, Lord. To this end, we pray in your holy name, Lord. Amen.